We're talking about strategies for pigweed control amid herbicide resistance issues in this edition of Extreme Ask in the Curve. Welcome to Extreme Ag's Cutting the Curve podcast, where you get a guaranteed return on investment of your time as we cut your learning curve with the information you can apply to your farming operation immediately. Extreme Ag, we've already made the mistakes, so you don't have to. Managing your farm's water resources is a critical component to a successful and sustainable farming operation. Advanced drainage systems helps farmers just like you increase their yields up to 30% with their technologically advanced water management products. Visit ADSPipe.com to see how they can keep your business flowing. Now, here's your host, Damian Mason. Hey there, welcome to Extreme Ass Cutting the Curve. Got a fantastic episode for you about a growing problem that is something that was brought up by our man, Matt Swanson. Joining me on this call, Matt Swanson, affiliate with Extreme Ag out of Western Illinois, Caleb Trow, uh, agro agronomic consultant in the South, principally in Georgia, uh, an Extreme Ag affiliate. And then, of course, Blair Colvin, who is a tech service manager with FMC, pigweed. When it was presented to me, it was from you, Matt Swanson, and then I found out that pigweed is the layman's term for water hemp and palmer amaranth, which, of course, have been something that we've been hearing about for more than a decade here in agriculture. So you sent a tweet to everybody, I'm sorry, a text to everybody talking about this issue. What brought it up? Because I said, this is something we have to cover. Yeah, I saw a uh, tweet from an Iowa State uh, weed scientist that they were talking about another uh, growth regulator or 2,4-D and dicamba resistant water hemp population in Iowa. And in the in the text of the conversation, Mike and Evans and I got to talking about the different chemistries that we were trying or moving in to use on soybeans that were also or also important for corn. And, and I said, I think we're going to get to the point where we're not going to have any chemistries for corn because we keep using our corn chemistries to try to manage new you know, new populations or new resistant populations and so on. All right. You cover a lot of ground between a couple of states, uh, Caleb. How big is this problem? It's definitely something that requires our attention because one thing that I think about is weed control is one of the prerequisites to everything else that we do on at the fields level because it doesn't matter what kind of foliar applications we're making. It doesn't matter what our harvest moisture is. It doesn't matter any other thing that we're doing if we don't control these weeds. And there's some, been some headlines recently that are calling these pigweed species super weeds and getting everybody scared. But there's things that we can do to get 100% control on our fields. It may not be easy. It may not be cheap. But there's something that we absolutely can do. Uh, Blair, before I go to you from the farmer perspective, uh, I don't recall it being called pigweed around here. How many different weeds are we talking about that are generically called pigweed? Water hemp and palmer amaranth, which are kind of real closely related. Are those the two? Yes. Yeah, so for the pigweeds we're referring to, water hemp is what's more prevalent in the Midwest and the further west you go. And then in the south where Caleb and I are, palmer amaranth is the one we're primarily focused on. Got it. So uh, this is this derived from glyphosate overuse? Uh, I'll start and go around the horn again. Swanson, did, did, did we have these problems 40 years ago? I don't know. We had a harder, we, we weren't as good with uh, chemistry 40 years ago, probably to begin with, but then we brought in, you know, glyphosate. Is this a derivative of the glyphosate 
um, everywhere on every acre for the last 20 years. I mean, in, in, the, in the pigweed species, and, and maybe Blair would know better, but this isn't a, it's not because we used glyphosate and overused it, this is what happened, and now we have 2,4-D. This is a issue with the plant itself, right? The plant or the family of species itself creates the issue by being so adaptable um, and, and putting out a lot of seed. And so we're not helping it by using all of these chemistries and, and in, in a lot of cases solely relying on these chemistries until they don't work anymore right for pigweed control but it's it's not a glyphosate issue glyphosate or glyphosate resistance is a symptom of, of a natural process caleb you were nodding your head for those that were listening and can't see the video why are you nodding your head um when when i posed that question to swanson right because when we look at the uh, history in terms of pigweed herbicide resistance, Roundup was actually not the first herbicide that pigweed developed that resistance towards. Like Matt mentioned, it's the plant itself. Uh, most plants are self-pollinating, so they have male and female parts, but with pigweed, there are separate male and female plants, so they basically are creating natural hybrids that adapt to each environment, which leads it to become very easy for them to develop resistance to whichever things that we throw at it. I think one of the best things that's happened to Extreme Ag is bringing you on. I never in my life thought that I'd hear that we have in these weed species, it's like corn. We, we got male and female plants. Is that what I just heard? Well, with other weeds, the male and female plants are, are on the same plant are together. So yeah. like corn, how you have the tassel on top and the ears down. Yeah. So you only need one corn plant to produce uh, the yield. But with the pigweed, you have separate plants. So you have many different combinations of genetics. The biodiversity can become very large. Well, my point is they've almost, these plants, these weeds have the ability to almost hybridize. Right. <laughs> okay. Uh, Blair. Talk to me about, uh, we're going to talk about obviously control. This is all about strategies for control. You talked about where these weeds are found. How big is the problem uh, agronomically? How big is the problem economically? Both. It's a huge problem from both perspectives. So in the South, I mean, agronomically, I mean, we're to the point you're using multiple chemistries, herbicides, and also even hand weeding to control this weed. So when you start looking at paying for several different herbicide applications and then putting, you know, humans out there pulling the weeds up, I mean, you're looking at in many cases, a hundred bucks an acre or more, um, depending on the crop and how bad it is, the field history. Um, so yeah, it's a huge problem for both aspects. Okay. Then I want to hear about the economic aspect of it. You just talked about the cost of control. Um, <laughs> cost of yield drag. Let's go around the horn again. Matt Swanson, are you seeing a yield drag in Western Illinois because of these weeds? It depends. It depends. And I know you hate those kind of answers, but it, that's really the answer, the best answer. So, you know, on our non-GMO soybeans, generally we can control them to the point that the beans get really large. Um, but the grain fill portion is, is there's beans develop a significant amount of yield off of grain fill, just like corn does. And depending on how thick that population is or how well you've controlled it, you know, you're essentially inserting a weed that's very fast growing, very resource hungry, 
into an environment where you need those resources to grow grain. So it can be significant yield. Caleb, do you have a do you have a rough number? Like if I said, hey, I've got the I've got this client, which you do, that has this tremendous problem with the which one's more prevalent more in your area? Water hemp is more prevalent in your area? Palmer Amaranth. Palmer Amaranth is the one that's more prevalent in your area. And can you like look at this field and say, that's probably going to be 20% deduct? That's going to be a 15. I mean, can you look at it and say? I want to say that you're not going to be happy with the yield if you have a weed problem in that field. That's what you go through any spot of the field with a combine where you have a weed issue and you look at that yield monitor and guaranteed it's going to be dropping off by a certain percent. I know there's been a little bit of research in some crops that are saying that they can lose 80 to 90 percent of yield. I've seen weed disasters where we hit a hot dry spell. The, the crops that we plant succumb because all the weeds are sucking out the nutrients and it could be up to 100 percent so it's a it's a wide range but it's something that can give us a very good return on investment with the control of it all right blair you nodding your head as well um talk to me about the the, the point that matt swanson brought to the very beginning we're throwing everything and the kitchen sink at this. Uh, you know, it was glyphosate, and then it's now versions of 2,4-D. Which one is the dicamba? I, I get confused here. One of them has a 2,4-D derivative, et cetera. So walk me through the chemistry and tell me what we're doing and what is working or what's not working as much anymore. Yeah, so that's a pretty a big question that I can try to tackle. But when we're talking about chemistries and herbicide resistance in general, I By mean, the way, Blair, I sent I sent a list of questions that wasn't even on it. That wasn't even one that I wrote, was it? I know. Must not be must be why I'm not prepared, I guess. But All anyway, right. yeah. Um, so there's a lot of different chemistries for this problem, right? And any weed can develop resistance. I mean, we focus on glyphosate so much because it gets that all that media attention. But um pigweed or palmer amaranth and water hemp have developed resistance to the several different chemistries, classes of chemistries that we use to control weeds. And so that's what Matt was referring to, having to throw everything at the kitchen sink. I mean, the best thing you can do really, in my opinion, is focusing on those pre-emergent re residual herbicides. So trying to control those weeds before they even come up, using at least two modes of action in your pre-emergent herbicides initially, and then staying on time, overlap those residuals so you don't lose the control there with the first chemistry layer you're putting down when you come back with your post control, keep a residual in there. It's just that overlapping the chemistry so you don't lose control and try to keep the weeds from coming up as much as you can. So it gets pretty complex trying to manage these weeds that have multiple resistances or one or the other and does depend on the geography, which um, resistances the pigweed has. So some of the pigweed in Georgia is resistant to different chemistries than in, you know, Illinois. So it's a lot to keep up with. Okay. Caleb, are we going to run out of tools? Are we going to run out of weapons in our arsenal to take care of this? Well, when you look at herbicides that are in the pipeline coming in the next few years, there's not a lot of new things. You know, the companies are putting different chemistries together in the same jug but we don't have a lot of new tools that we can expect in the next few years, which means we need to get as much life out of the products that we're already using. So to Blair's point there, we need to be using multiple effective modes of action with pretty much every herbicide pass that we're going out there. 
because we have to do the best with what we have at our disposal right now. By the way, Matt, you're the farm guy, uh, Blair Farms as well. Uh, uh, this kind of, most everything about agriculture, we've gotten to where, I'm not saying easier, like it, the, there's not work involved, generally compared to the old days. She talked about walking fields, for God's sakes. I, there's not a person younger than me that even remembers walking bean fields, for instance. Everything's gotten to where push the easy button. You know, the the GMO, uh, you know, the GMOs and the, the glyphosate resistant stuff made our lives easier. What Caleb and Blair just talked about was changing your mixes, changing your strategy, doing different stuff in different parts of the world. This is all but, this is absolutely going backwards. This is not push the easy button. Well, and I, and I think you, there's definitely a case to be made that the easy button has got us to where we're at today. Right? So, <laughs> I mean, when I was a little kid, we used to walk soybeans fields with hand sprayers of Roundup to, to take out the water hemp and, and the giant rag and things that we're getting through. Then the soybeans became tolerant to it and we could just spray it over the top. And it's been since then a succession of different herbicides that we've tried to do that with, but the single mode of action um, thing doesn't work for water hemp just because of what Caleb's talking about and the, and the constant hybridization of it. So, and I mean, in Illinois, water hemp's resistant to six different classes of herbicides. So if you get on your herbicide chart, there's not, when you think of six of them being gone, there's not that many uh, that are even effective as far as post-emerge control, especially. All right. Here's a reality. We can't even get employees to show up and drive a tractor in a lot of rural America. Uh, the, 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 the absolute premise of us trying to get a busload of kids to come out and walk a soybean field, it is not going to happen. Trust me, it's not going to. So we better find a means of control. Um, will we? And, and, if, and I mean, you're talking about changing the chemistry up. He just, Matt Swanson just says there's six different classes, families of herbicides that have resistance. Go to Caleb first. You seem like you're ready to go. And I want to hear from uh, Blair. Yeah, well, fortunately, in our area, with some of the specialty crops that we have, we actually have a large pool of seasonal workers that there's growers I work with that they'll have a crew come in and there will be 80 people getting off a bus and they will walk from one end of the field to the other end of the field to hand pull those last escapes. And something that we've done even on our own farm where we have pigweed escapes is we run a weed wiper. So uh, some versions are like a wick bar. Basically, uh, the peanuts are 12 inches tall, but the pigweed is sticking up at 20, 24 inches. So we load up a rope or a weed wiper with something like Gramoxone and we'll go out across the field to where only the pigweed are getting contacted, physically contacted with the herbicide. So there are things that we can do to make sure that we have 100% control, zero tolerance policy for pigweed. It may require a little more time, a little more work, but it's something that we can do. Caleb, by the way, the pipe wick was developed because uh, of running out of kids to go and walk soybean fields. It was used in conventional soybeans using Roundup in the pipe wick, like in the 1980s. So you're talking about using a pipe wick with Gramoxone. How long, Blair, until Gramoxone doesn't work on these species? Well, I, I don't have a crystal ball. I mean, but basically the principle of all this is if you utilize 
you know, the same chemistry over and over. That plant, there's a mutation, it will adapt. And the reason it happens so quickly in pigweed species is because they're such prolific seed producers. So you're talking, you know, one plant can produce anywhere from, depending on the conditions, 200,000 to millions of seeds. And that's why in our area, we have gone to these extreme measures of having people get off a bus, having even, you know, our kids, whatever. I mean, when my younger sisters were growing up, that was their character development. I had them out there pulling pigweeds because it is worth it to even pull up that one plant when it's going to produce millions of seeds to go back in your seed bank for the next year. So part of managing pigweed other than just herbicide is managing that seed bank. And so there are some other things you can do there. You may not want to go back to traditional tillage, but running a bottom plow, burying the seed. There's also some- Would you just call it running an autumn plow? Bottom plow. We call it a bottom plow. Okay. Or mobile plow. But, um... Wait, wait, wait. Now, <laughs> Kayla just talked about bringing back pipe wicks, which was an 80s thing. You're talking about bringing yeah. back moldboard plows, which was a, let's see, pioneer era technology uh like that's how we broke the prairie uh is that where we are that's what's crazy right so when i talk to weed scientists in our area we talk about this problem you know we got these tolerant crops the easy button type thing and now we're having to go back and pull out all of our weed control methods from years ago um, to deal I, I, by the way, I am I am so glad tillage, that was on the list of questions that we sent you about tillage. We're going to get into that. But before we get into tillage, I want to talk about the seed issue, and then we'll get to tillage. These seeds, um, Matt Swanson, Blair says, you're talking about millions of seeds per plant. Uh, not, I'm not being fatalistic. It seems like the problem is almost, it's, it's like trying to control, uh, you know, something that's just, uh, you know, a breakout of, uh, you know, flies or something like how the hell do you control if there's that many seeds on one plant and then it can almost hybridize itself as Caleb was talking about are we fighting losing battle well that's I mean that's that was the gist of why I texted that right it, it seems like we continue to make the same mistake over and over again well we'll do this well we'll do enlist well we'll do HPPD we've seen this story play out for, hey, for a for a person that's kind of, for a person that's as little uh advises a little chemistry as me i mean my purchase of chemistry is uh two and a half gallons of 24d and five gallons of glyphosate per year to spray my fence lines and my driveway and my trails and my woods i don't even know what hppd is what is that so hppd is a group 27 herbicide it's it's one that we've typically used for corn okay. um for water hemp control okay but it's uh, it's, I don't, you, maybe Blair can answer this question. I don't know if it's commercially available today, but it's the next thing, right, in the battle against pigweed. HPPDs have been out, but basically to the former layman, they're called bleacher herbicides. So they're the ones that turn them white when you, to kill weeds. The chemistry has been out for a while. The HPP tolerant soybeans are a new thing. Yeah. Correct. All right, Caleb, what are, usually you are really good about observing and then you have a comment to make, but you're so polite, you won't uh, in, insinuate yourself into this. They both right. just talked about this. Are we are we fighting a losing battle? No, because we can still control them. It takes a little work as we discussed, but we can. And one thing with those seed is that they can remain viable for many years. So if we have one pigweed in a field, that we uh, that's an escape and it goes to seed 
and we just run the combine through it and it spreads that seed out over a 20 foot by 20 foot area. Well, now next year we're going to have, you know, even if it's 50% of viability, we can still have a half a million weeds. So it can balloon even if we, if we don't control that 100%. And one thing that I do want to mention is that a dead weed can never become a resistant weed. So we can spray a chemistry on it, but it can't kill it 80% dead. It has to kill it 100% dead. So whatever we need to do to get that 100% dead weed, that weed is safe. We don't have to worry about it ever building resistance. Caleb, every now and again, you come up with like something that I'm not going to forget. Dead men don't talk. Dead weeds can't build resistance. That is, that's, that's profound. I like it. So here's the thing. This is maybe getting a little bit out there. Uh, and Blair's the the technical one, uh, maybe not on Zoom calls, but she is with chemistry. Uh, chemistry a lot of times works by, it, it makes the thing, you know, uh, you know, the cells grow and the cell walls break. I mean, I'm going through different modes of action. Is there a mode of action? Is there a, is there a chemistry in development that has the ability to sterilize the seed? Because that would seem to me for something that is this prolific, the best shot we have at um, 100% effective control. I'm aware of anything specifically to sterilize the seed. I mean, there looks at other types of technology and doing things with DNA in the plant and other things to try to take a different approach than the traditional modes of actions and obviously looking and developing new modes of action. But what Caleb said is 100% true. You can't always rely on the chemistry to 100% kill them either because there's a whole piece of that that goes with timing. If you come out late and spray and that pigweed is too large and it doesn't die all the way, you know, you're contributing to resistance. And it got me thinking too, Caleb, about in our area with the hand weeding, another thing that's interesting about this species is if you don't remove that weed from the field and you just drop it, you know, on the ground, it will actually reroot itself and come back. I mean, so yeah, it's, uh, it's crazy. <laughs> So it yeah, that's one pick, one pick that are, go ahead. Yeah, to get them out is all I was thinking. So yeah, there's there's a picture that I took last year that makes it into every presentation and I show everybody and it's a pigweed that was say waist high, chest high. It was pulled out of the field and laid on the end row and the weed is now broken down dead. And there is a ring all the way around where that pigweed is laying dead on the ground with about 500,000 weeds. So, I mean, case in point. Uh, you guys got me a little scared, to be honest with you. I didn't think this is such a threat. But, I mean, this is like the kudzu of crop uh, of crop production because uh, it's it seems like it's, you know, the old story that uh, the Portuguese fishermen, uh, when the starfish came in in their, in their uh, fish nets, they would cut them in pieces and fling them back off the boat. And all that did was a starfish, a starfish piece would then uh, proliferate and become another starfish. This is like, how the hell are we going to do this? Um, tillage. You started talking about a little bit ago. So who wants to take tillage? I guess we could start with Blair. She called him a, what do you call it again? A bottom plow? Bottom plow. I guess that's what we call it in Georgia, Alabama. I don't know, <laughs> but 
anyways, that for those that don't use that terminology, you know, traditional deep tillage, mold bore plow has been used in some weed management, trying to flip that whole chunk of soil and bury those seeds to get some time to try to manage your seed bank. On the flip end of that, also conservation tillage is used trying to, you know, we've got the residue there to help keep weeds from coming up, any shade coverage. So trying to keep your crop growing as quickly as possible to get canopy coverage, you know, things like that. And that's not tillage, but basically there's methods you can use with typical, you know, traditional tillage or conservation tillage to try to help with weed management. Matt Swanson, tillage to me seems like a great way to just continue to cultivate more of these seeds based on what I have learned. When when Caleb tells me you pull the weed, you put it down on the end row and lay it there like it's going to die, all it does is then create a half million more uh, seedlings. It seems to me that tillage might just be compounding the problem by actually just spreading more seed. Is am I, What do you think? Well, what Blair's talking about is she's she's you're talking about inverting the whole top eight to twelve inches and burying the seed itself, and and it's not going to germinate from that depth. So that's that's but the also, idea. But, but does it rot? Does it rot from down there? If you set it there long enough, yeah. If you have to flip it back over before too long and bring it back to the surface, that's my concern. Yeah. <laughs> you got to pick your methods, right? Like it's multiple right. different things all together. Caleb, are we going to start, are we, are, are we honest to God, are we going back, are we going back in time? We're going to now be out moldboard plowing uh, and then all of a sudden we got to start going 30 inch rows and then running a cultivator six times uh, through the rows like we used to in the 1960s and 70s? It's funny that you mentioned that because as you're talking tillage, the first thing that popped up on my mind was cultivation. Yeah. So that, you know, that's something that we do in, you know, unique situations. I, I really don't like row cultivation uh, in 2023, but there are instances where we have a bunch of pigweed and we can't get out there and we have to do what we have to do. Uh, so yeah, what goes around comes around. We, we're now having to go back to these, some of these similar methods and their tools. We use them in the right situation, but when we look at the situation that we had before herbicide traded crops, is somewhat similar situation where we don't have a lot of effective chemistries. So we either have to use the ones that are effective really well or utilize some of these other techniques. Blair, should I be going to every farm auction in the United States of America and buying up old moldboard plows and old uh, row cultivators for basically the price of scrap metal, then a little reconditioning, take them over to Swanson's shop. He just like sandblasts them, paints them a little bit, shines them up. And then all of a sudden, one year from now, we're going to be selling these things like hotcakes. I don't know that I'd recommend that, but- um, I was going to put my entire, I I was going to put my entire life savings into this venture. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it might not be a terrible idea. I do have some sitting on my fence row for what I need to pull out. I haven't got rid of the cultivator, Caleb, for exactly what you're talking about. So, unfortunately, um, but I think with the multitude of chemistries and other tools we have and things we can do, you know, even after the season, we do, it does sound like a big issue that how are we ever going to deal with this? But I think we have enough tools if you use enough of them to be able to, handle the problem got it now we're going to go into strategies which is the title of this episode strategies for pigweed control amid increased herbicide resistance and this is something before we hit record caleb keep me on the straight and narrow like he does said damien let's make sure we spend a lot of time devoted because obviously in your job 
being an advisor to crop producers as you are, they turn to you and say, what do I do? So take me through a season. And, and if it's crop specific, that's fine. You just, you see a lot of, you see different crops in your job than, you know, obviously Matt and I see where there's no peanuts here or whatever, but take me through a season on how you would advise uh, me as a producer in your geography or even up here in our geography on control practices. There is, we could talk an hour on it, but just to kind of hit the keynotes is when it comes to planting time, we want to start clean, stay clean. So I would never recommend running a planter through a field where we have emerged weeds, especially emerged pigweeds, because it might cost us $10 to control them before they come up. It's gonna cost us $20 to control them after they come up. So before the planter rolls to the field or directly behind the planter, we want to use multiple effective modes of action that provide us residual control. They're not gonna be 100% effective. They might only be 98% effective. So then we have that 2% that are still gonna come up in our crop. So then we want to hit an early post-emerge with uh, whatever our crop is, try to get multiple effective modes of action to kill the weeds that are up and also layer the residuals in uh, at that application too. Question for the person that is you know, not as well-versed as you, those chemistries that you put on right before planting or right at time of planting to handle that. And you said something that heals with residual. Give me a couple of examples. I mean, we don't use atrazine anymore. So what are we using? So uh, we do use atrazine here. <laughs> and one thing that I will say too, before I answer that question is there are herbicides that we can use both pre-emerge and post-emergence in crop. And then there are certain herbicides that we can only use before the crop emerges. So when we're looking at which choices do I want to go out with before that crop is up, we have a lot wider selection of herbicides that we can use. So I want to select those ones that we can't use after the crop comes up. Right. So because like, Blair and Matt's big point was we should use every single thing because the more breadth of uh chemistries we use the more the less likelihood of creating herbicide resistance in the first place I'll, I'll give you an example so with soybeans a lot of people will use a group 15 herbicide like dual outlook zidua pre-emerge uh before the crop emerges but we can also use that after the crop emerges so why would we want to go ahead and use that up at the beginning of the year let's use chemistries like prowl Valor, Metribuzin, those are some of the ones that I talk about in soybeans because we can't use any of those after the crop comes up, but all three of them give us good control on pigweed and provide us that foundation. So when we come back with our post-emergence herbicide application, we're not sitting in a sprayer and trying to find the rows of crop because we have a carpet of pigweed. We just have a few here and there. So then that makes our subsequent applications more effective okay and then so that's that's a very good point about pre pre-emerge and then post-emerge uh matt do you want to kick in on anything to contribute to what uh if you're taking me through a season uh add on to what uh, caleb said yeah so where we're at we're we have different weeds that and caleb i'm sure does too but you know our our weed management program really starts the year before right 
at this time of the year, it's running our, you know, our weed wiper with Gramoxone to clean out anything we have left to knock everything down that we can get to. Then we're going to harvest the crop and try not to, if we have a patch of weeds, we're going to cut around those and try not to spread that seed any further than it's already been spread. Um, and then we're going to come out with a fall burn down for stuff like um, mare's tail and things like that to make sure all that's clean before the year even starts. So then you're at, you know, essentially you're at three, not passes, but three things we've done so far and we haven't even got to Christmas yet, right? right. Next year. So then like Caleb says, we're going to come back with a pre-emerge or a pre-plant um, using a lot of the same chemistry he's talking about. And then we're going to, in our non-GMO beans, we're talking about two to three passes of residual herbicide after the fact, before we even get back to our weed wiper cycle on the soybeans. So nothing different than what Caleb's talking about, just an expansion. You know, when you have things like seed mills and stuff that are combine mounted that guys are going to now because of the pigweed and resistant ryegrass and things like that where you're actually destroying the seed that goes to the combine as well okay by the way that's kind of that's long it's along the lines of my thing are we talking about chemistries to sterilize the seed i didn't know there was such a thing who wants to talk take that caleb are you aware of these things something on the combine a device on the combine that then destroys the seed it doesn't eradicate the plant but supposedly prevents replanting of these noxious weeds i have heard of them i have not seen one operate in the field but what Matt's talking about is something that is a really, really big deal for us in the South because we start corn harvest in July, you know, finish up in August. Our first frost isn't until mid-November. So we've got a long amount of growing season left. And typically as the corn starting to dry down, you know, we don't have any more residual activity from our herbicides down south here by the time the combine rolls through the field. So we've got pigweed that are two, three inches tall. And three weeks after the combine rolls through the field, we have a pigweed that's knee high with a seed head about 24 inches tall on it, producing viable seed. So we can do a fantastic job in crop managing our pigweed Yet sometimes when the combine rolls through the field, we just kind of put all the fields that we've harvested on the back burner and they're just out of sight, out of mind now. So then we can actually go backwards in terms of our pigweed management. So we talk about things like tillage and then using herbicide applications for our post-harvest management of these resistant weeds so we can make sure that we have a zero tolerance 12 months out of the year. All right. So since you have that long fall, so to speak, is it going to be chemistry? Or is it going to be tillage? I mean, what, what, what are we doing there? Because you've got the longer fall before we even have uh, frost. Right. So, you know, depending on what you're going to go uh, back with the following year, if it's corn behind corn, I will like to run a tillage pass so we can start breaking down that residue right behind a combine. If you are stretched for time, and you want to run something 120 foot wide, 12 mile an hour through the field, a herbicide a pass may work best in that scenario. Uh, but but yeah, there's there's several different things that we can't do. Well, I mean to add to, to add to Caleb's point, and we and he knows this, but just to to talk to the viewers, you know, we, we're not just talking about crop areas too. You know, we need to be talking about turn rows and waterways and fence lines. And all of these things where you can get viable seed in and they can grow, you know, controlling them in the field is one thing, but with something like pigweed, you know. Well, it, it used to be a thing to that point, Matt, that 
like Canadian thistle was the most noxious weed, like county, county agricultural boards had, uh, you know, policies. If you had two acres the, uh, that, you, you know, that was growing up in Canadian thistles, like they could charge you to come out and, you know, eradicate it and that kind of thing. Is that where we're going? Since we're also talking about pipe wicks and moldboard plows, bottom plows, as they're called by our friend Blair. Well, a lot of those things are still on the books now, whether they're enforced or not is, you know, that's going to be area dependent, but yeah. it, I mean, it, it can become a situation where that becomes necessary because, you know, when I was a kid, we had an issue with a neighbor that when they were shelling corn, they would shoot all their weed seeds across the road into one of our fields. And it used to drive dad crazy with shatter cane at the time. Shattercane. And it, it's, that's, it's definitely on the table. And here's the thing. Now, you pretty much, didn't you take care of that? Like he said, Matt, here's a baseball bat make sure that their mailbox gets back I and mean, you went and like kind of took care of it right no i we he just very slowly that first couple passes he would go out to every seed head of shatter cane and cut the seed head off and bag it and burn it and that's how he took care of it yeah so um blair what are we missing here but shatter cane i forgot about that one johnson grass was another uh another nasty one back in the days so anyway maybe it's just the next thing shatter cane didn't take over the world kudzu kind of has uh where are we canadian thistle doesn't seem to be as much of an issue anymore where are we blair um, in terms of weed control or the journey weed? with these weeds specifically is it just the next thing like shatter cane johnson grass canadian thistle and we'll get through it or is it more of a concern oh i think it's a definite concern it's been going on for several years now and it's something i think we'll continue to manage for quite a while um, in terms of pigweed and having to use all these, the key thing is using all these multiple tools in the toolbox, pulling out old strategies, thinking outside the box um, to get through it, I think. What seems to me is it's more prolific than the other weeds. The other weeds were nasty and we didn't have a great answer, but they weren't going to, uh, you know, breed like flies, I think. Is that, Caleb, you kind of nodded your head. Is that where I am on this? That the reason this one's, this one's different is because it's, it's, uh, it's prolific in nature. Yeah, and we look at where pigweed originated at. The southwestern United States. Not a whole lot of things are able to grow in those kinds of conditions. So they are, you know, when they came over here to begin with, they had a leg up over pretty much anything that we're planting for annual crops just because how well they can tolerate those stressful conditions. I, by the way, that is a brilliant, you know, one of my questions was going to be, where did this come from? So I appreciate you saying that you're talking about a family of weeds that can essentially exist where most things die or don't even sprout. Yeah, they, uh, it's commonly told in our area, you know, if we could just graft a corn plant on top of a pigweed rootstock, we could grow some, you know, 600 bushel corn pretty easily, just with the amount of vigor that those plants have. That's an awesome statement right there. All right, get me out of here. Blair, you got anything? And then we're going to close up with Mr. Swanson since he's the one that brought up this topic uh, via, via uh, text message last week. I mean, I think the key thing which Caleb and Matt both hit on is, you know, using those overlapping residuals, being timely with your application and being willing to use some other maybe non-traditional methods, even if it's hand weeding to stay on top of this weed. So it's, really critical to stay up with all those different things and I think that's what it will take and 
so far we have been able to manage it here, even though it's been a challenge and quite costly. Got it. I think we're going to leave it there. We're talking about strategies for pigweed control amid increased herbicide resistance. What do you got, Caleb? Uh, just one other, a couple things that I wanted to go out the door with is uh, if you're in an area that you can use cover crops, there are cover crops like Ciro Rye that, that have allelopathy against pigweed species to where it can actually reduce the viability of the pigweed seed there in the soil. And just whatever we can do to raise the best crop possible is going to help us because crop canopy shading that ground out is the very best weed control method that we have at our disposal. So well, all of since I was thinking about wrapping it up and I didn't get to the cover crop thing, is this okay? We've talked about a lot of things that are very anti-cover crops, like moldboard plows and using cultivation in row, uh, like we did 40 years ago. Now you're talking about cover crops. Is this the case for cover crops instead of moldboard plowing? It would it would definitely be a another strategy. You know, they they're they're kind of at a little bit op opposite ends of the spectrum. We wouldn't be using them both, but on crops like soybeans, where they we can raise some fantastic soybeans no tilled or minimal tilled into a, a cover crop to where we have a layer of biomass in the row middles to where we're preventing the sunlight from hitting the ground earlier in the season and then you know that helps us helps us stay clean until we close those rows up got it all right we're gonna leave it there anybody else blair matt you want to get me out of here then swanson well, Damien, I mean, here's what I would say. You asked if this was like a, a doomsday type situation. It's not current, okay? And that's, you know, we've if got... we want to get viewers, we need to be more crisis oriented. I mean, well, I mean we, this, this we is live in the era of crisis, right? Yeah, no, this is 100% a crisis. That, that, that's, that is true. But what I would say, this is not a doomsday situation, but because we still have options that work. 240 and dicamba still work in my area, but if we continue to treat them, like we treat them and they're not going to work and eventually we're going to run out of options. Okay. Well then we'll, we'll close out with our girl, Blair. Blair, is there chemistry in the pipeline that you're confident you work for FMC? Is there chemistry, not necessarily from your company, is there chemistry company that you're absolutely going, this isn't going to be an issue one to three years from now, we got the industry has this covered your thought. So I would never take that approach of we've got it covered because any herbicide resistance can be developed too. But in response to your question of the pipeline, FMC actually does have some herbicides in development that are, you know, different modes that are excellent on pigweed. So I, I mean, we're talking, you know, not in the next couple of years, but, you know, in the next five to 10 years, things like that. Um, I am excited about what's in FMC's pipeline for pigweed control. Her name is Blair Colvin. She's a technical service manager with FMC. Caleb Trow, our uh, extreme ag affiliate uh, and agronomic consultant down uh, mostly in Georgia. You cover Florida too, right? Correct. A little bit of Alabama, but mostly Georgia. Got it. Their money spins differently. Anyhow, I'd stick with Georgia. You know, Chad Henderson's over in Alabama. I mean, it's just a different world over there, right? Uh and our man, Matt Swanson, who brought this topic to us. I have a feeling we're going to cover this again because uh, Caleb said he could spend an hour just on uh, just on going through the season on this thing. And I don't think this problem is going to go away. So stay tuned for more great coverage. Also, if you know someone that's battling pigweeds, share this with them. You know, there are hundreds and hundreds of videos on the extremeag.farm website. Uh, 
podcasts that I've produced, videos of these guys in field, videos of us talking to company people like Blair Towns about what's coming in the pipeline. Go share this. Watch this. It's free. It's there. We want you to do this. It's all about helping you up your farming game. Till next time, thanks for being here, everybody. This is Extreme Ag's Cutting the Curve. That's a wrap for this episode of Cutting the Curve, but there's plenty more. Check out ExtremeAg.farm, where you can find past episodes, instructional videos, and articles to help you squeeze more profit out of your farm. Cutting the Curve is brought to you by Advanced Drainage Systems, the leader in agriculture water management solutions.